Uh, welcome to worship, everyone. Good to be worshiping with you. Good to be worshiping with those of you who are at one of Hope's campuses around the Des Moines area, uh, Ankeny and Waukee, Johnston Grimes and Des Moines. Those of you worshiping online right now, just good to be the church together. I was watching that game, the Packers and Giants, a couple weeks ago, and when I watch sports now, I also have my Twitter feed open to see what people are thinking and saying and whining about. And so I saw someone tweet a link to that video we just watched watched with German announcers broadcasting the Packers game, I thought, there's got to be a sermon illustration in there. And so uh, I didn't understand a word they said except for Packers and Aaron Rodgers and Houdini. And then there was, there was one other English phrase those German broadcasters repeated somewhat regularly. Did you pick up on that? Hail Mary. Hail Mary. As far as I know, there's only one play in football that is directly related to things of faith, and it's that play. And it's really kind of interesting when you stop and think about it. Um, there's not a Hail Mary kickoff, for example, or a Hail Mary fullback ISO. But Catholics and Protestants and agnostics and atheists and, you know, football fans all across this country refer to this one play by this name, the Hail Mary Pass. And there's really one word if you want to describe the circumstances when this uh, particular play is used, and that would be the word desperation. When it's the end of the half or the end of the game, when timing is running out and you don't have any other real options, just one thing you can do and a high likelihood that it will not work, the quarterback throws up a prayer and hopes that it gets answered. That's the Hail Mary pass. And it seems to me a lot of us view prayer, think of prayer that way. Prayer is something we do when we are desperate. Prayer is something we do as sort of a last resort. When we've tried everything else and we can't think of other options, when we're running out of time, that's when we pray. Desperate people pray. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think we have all kinds of desperate situations in our lives. We're going through dire straits, and it's a good thing. It's an appropriate thing. It's the right thing to stop and to pray and to ask God to be with us and show up and, and, and do something. But we are really missing out on the power of prayer if we think that's all prayer is intended to be, a last-ditch resort. We're in a theme this year at Hope at all of the campuses to know and to be known. What, what does it look like for us as people to know God more, to know one another more in community? And really, that's what prayer is all about. A prayer helps us to know and to be known. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 6. We're going to take a look at one particular day in the life of Jesus, but this day gives us kind of a model for how we might live our lives as followers of Jesus. Luke chapter 6, I'll start in verse 12. One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names, and then Luke lists their names. Skip down to verse 17. When they came down from the mountain... The disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. There's a guy named Henry Nouwen. We'll put a picture of Henry Nouwen up on the screen. A Catholic theologian taught at places like Notre Dame and Harvard and Yale. The last 10 years of his life, Henry Nouwen left the academic world and he entered an intentional community called Daybreak. And at this particular community, they would take people like Henry Nouwen and they would pair them with other people who had cognitive or uh, physical challenges and they would work together, they would live together, serve and eat and worship and pray together. It's an incredibly beautiful kind of thing. And so Henry Nouwen is kind of a prolific author. He was a sought-after speaker while he was alive. And he looks at this passage that we just kind of skipped, skimmed through in Luke chapter 6. Henry Nouwen says, what we see here this particular day in Jesus' life, we get a feel for the rhythm of Jesus' life. The rhythm of Jesus' life. It begins with solitude. He's up on a mountain all by himself and he spends all night in prayer. He doesn't spend his entire life in prayer, but that particular night, he spends all night in prayer. He doesn't stay on top of the mountain forever. He comes down from the mountain, he flows out of solitude and into community. Uh, Luke tells us he's got a bunch of disciples, but he picks 12 of them to be his sort of inner circle, his 12 apostles. And then it's never community just for the sake of community. Community always flows into mission. This is what uh, the rhythm of Jesus' life teaches us. So he asks his disciples to join him on this mission, serving the world around them, healing the world around them. This is the rhythm of Jesus' life. Solitude, community, and mission. And I, and I really want you to think of it in terms of rhythm. Now, for whatever reason, I think as human beings, we have this tendency, or at least I do, to rank things. And so, uh, here's an example. My buddy Dan and I, Dan lives in Portland, Oregon. And for the last several years, we've gotten together over the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend. We, we watch football games and we try to see as many movies as we possibly can. Uh, it was a couple years ago, I went out to Portland and the day I arrived, they announced the Academy Awards. And so we said, let's try to see every movie nominated for Best Picture while we're together. And then, since we're movie experts, no, we're not, let's rank them. Here's what we think the order should be. Let's put it on Facebook so people can see what we think. You know, we just have this tendency to rank things. It happens in all kinds of ways. I was on Facebook recently. People were posting their top 10 albums from when they were teenagers and talking about that and debating that. It makes its way into church world as well where we will have conversations like, what do you think is more important, evangelism or discipleship? What do you think is more important, mission locally or mission globally? And, and we look at this passage in Luke 6 and the rhythm of Jesus' life and one of the temptations might be to say, I wonder which of these is most important. Is, is solitude most important? Is community most important? Is mission most important? Jesus doesn't seem to say one is more important than the other. I like that Nouwen says it's a rhythm. There's an interconnectedness to this. We, we have a tendency to kind of turn things into a formula and to say, well, if we spend one minute in solitude, then we can have 30 minutes in community, but we better be spending an hour in uh, service. It's not like that. It's not that structured. Uh, it's, it's a rhythm. It, there's a flow. It flows from one to a, the other, and they're all interconnected. 
They're all interconnected. We're, we're in this theme, to know and to be known, and we're kind of focusing in on community this year. And then the assignment I have for this weekend is to preach a sermon about solitude, and it can seem a little counterintuitive, right? How, how can spending time alone, how can spending time in silence help us build community? And I like the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this in his book, Life Together. Uh, wherever you are worshiping right now, let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Whoever cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. But solitude is something that is required of followers of Jesus. And a couple of things are required for solitude. It's required that you are alone. It's required that you are silent. And for a lot of us to be alone and to be quiet is kind of a scary proposition. And let me see if I can illustrate why. My buddy Dan was here this past weekend and we were trying to get in as, movie, as many movies as we possibly could. Two movies that we wanted to see that were not showing in the Des Moines area. And so they were showing in that place of high class and high culture that's otherwise known as Omaha, Nebraska. And so, I know, I got you Huskers. And so, we got in the car and we headed west to go see those movies. And as we were driving down Interstate 80, there started to be a noise coming from under the hood of my car. When I would turn the steering wheel a certain direction or hit the accelerator in a certain way, there'd be this squealing and whining noise that was not supposed to be there. And I said, Dan, do you hear that noise? He said, yeah, I hear it. I said, well, I wonder what that is. Do you have any idea what that is? He said, I don't know. Maybe power steering fluid is low or something? I said, that's yeah, probably power steering fluid. I should probably check that out. He said, or you could just turn up the radio. Right? Because if the radio is up loud enough, all of a sudden the whining and squealing noise goes away. And I can pretend like the car does not need to be fixed. When you set aside time to be quiet and to be alone, you will become profoundly aware of what is hurt and what is broken in your life. And so for a lot of people, they just choose to turn up the radio. Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer says, whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. If you struggle to be alone, if you cannot be alone, community really becomes turning up the radio, turning up the noise. And we end up using the people in our life, the people in our community, to keep our lives so busy and so noisy that we can't pay attention to what it is in our life that needs to be healed. And we end up projecting our hurt and our brokenness and our unhealthy ways of relating onto the people that we love the most. Whoever cannot be alone should beware of community. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, whoever cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. Uh, the reality is there are a lot of people who love to be alone, who love silence, who love solitude and the problem is, if you spend time doing that and you're not part of a community, some not-so-great things can happen. It becomes kind of a, a self-indulgent uh, exercise. It's all about me. And look how spiritual I am. And I, I set aside all this time just me and God, and it's wonderful. The other thing that happens is it can lead to despair. 
Because what happens when we are quiet and alone is we, we become aware of our hurt, our pain, our brokenness. That's when we need to be in community. So we need people around us to love us and support us and encourage us. And so we cannot live without community. We cannot live without solitude, at least not in healthy ways. And the more we become people who model our lives after the rhythm of Jesus, the more we learn how to live in this rhythm, how to flow from solitude to community to mission to the world around us, the more we become a church where to know and to be known is not just a catchy slogan, it's a life-changing reality in our lives. A part of the reality when we're talking about Solitude is, it's difficult. There is nothing easy about practicing solitude. Think about how busy and chaotic and noisy most of our lives are and how do we carve out time for solitude. It's not easy, but the rest of the reality is it has never been easy. It's not like it's more difficult in our day and our time. It was difficult in Jesus' day. Our Bible reading in Mark chapter 6, they're kind of at the end of this cycle. They've had solitude, they, they've had community, they, Jesus sends the disciples out on a ministry tour and they come back to tell Jesus about everything they've done and everything they've seen and Mark tells us there's so many people around Jesus and the disciples, they can't even find time to eat. And so Jesus has an invitation for his disciples. Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He invites them into solitude. He invites them to practice solitude, just hang out with Jesus for a while. Now, one of the things that happens when we start talking about solitude is we, we hang way too heavy of expectations on solitude, what it's going to be like. And, and, and we're convinced that if I'm doing it right, when I set aside time for silence and solitude, the clouds will part and angel choirs will begin to sing and we'll hear God's voice beaming down upon us from heaven. There's only three times in the Gospels where Jesus hears the audible voice of his heavenly father. The baptism at the transfiguration and kind of a weird place in John. But we know Jesus sets aside time for solitude every day. Only three times does it record he hears the audible voice. Those mountaintop experiences are few and far between. In fact, Jesus, he gives this invitation to his disciples. Uh, we need to get away. We need to rest. We need some time for solitude. And they are unable to find it. The crowd continues to follow Jesus and the disciples wherever they go. They are disrupted by the crowd. And they're not able to enter into this place of solitude. It's one of the things I want you to understand about solitude. If you leave this place and think, yes, this is one of the things I need to do. I need to start practicing solitude on a more regular basis, make it a part of the rhythm of my life. You got to understand solitude is disruptive. Solitude is disruptive. I don't know what you think of that term. You know, when you think of the term disruption, is that are disruptions welcome things or unwelcome things in your life? I got a phone call from my wife, Wendy, on Thursday afternoon letting me know someone had bashed in the window of her car and stolen her purse. That's an unwelcome disruption. But there are also disruptions that we welcome that cause great rejoicing, right? Like a snow day, for example. It causes great rejoicing in uh, the lives of school children, right? Even teachers and administrators, if it's one snow day, if it becomes three or four, then now all of a sudden it's an unwelcome disruption. But when it comes to practicing solitude, we're disrupted. 
and, and it's ways that feel both unwelcomed and welcomed. So when you set aside time to practice the discipline of solitude, you're going to quickly become aware of some things that you don't really like. Maybe how angry you are, or how scared, how impatient, anxious, how chaotic your mind is, because you want to have just this quiet time, and yet your mind is just buzzing around and jumping all over the place, and you wonder, what in the world? This is, I hate this. It's going to feel unwelcome initially, but it's really a good thing. Now we know what to talk to God about. Now we know where are those growing edges in our life, where we're in need of healing, we're in need of transformation. We can talk about it uh, with our life groups, with our communities. Here's where I think God is challenging me and stretching me and growing me. So we have these kinds of uh, disruptions in our life when we practice solitude. We also have these very joy-filled moments, almost mountaintop kind of experience where we are disrupted in solitude by just how much God loves us by just how real grace is. And so it's worth it. It's a good thing. It's a challenging and stretching thing. But we practice solitude. You got to be aware, solitude is disruptive. Second thing I would say about solitude, it's agenda-free. Agenda-free. I I think for a lot of us in our world, we're like, tell me exactly what I need to do if I'm going to practice solitude. Kind of give me the bullet points, step one, step two, step three. We have a tendency to turn it into a formula that it's not intended to be. We have a tendency to structure something that's supposed to be a little more unstructured. So I'm going to give you kind of some ideas, but this is not the formula. This is just something to kind of get you started. You figure out your own rhythm when it comes to this. The spiritual giants throughout church history have taken 20 minutes a day for solitude. One day a month and one week a year. We're not spiritual giants, most of us. Maybe we should start with a minute, just trying to be quiet and still for a minute, then grow to five to ten minutes a day. Uh, What do you do during that time? Bonhoeffer and Life Together give some suggestions, and again, they're just suggestions. You can meditate on scripture, uh, one verse or one phrase or one word from a verse. Uh, You can spend some time in prayer, interceding, praying for the people uh, in your life or big decisions that you have to make. You can just be quiet. Just listen for God for the whole time. What does it look like for you to figure out a way to do it? When do we do it? Several times in Scripture it tells us Jesus, early in the morning, while it was still dark, would go away to practice solitude. But not every time. And so for me, over the noon hour is often when I do this. I'll drive to Sailorville, park on the dam, or park at the Cherry Glen Access where there's a big parking lot pretty close to the water and set my timer on my phone for 10 minutes and just take some time to be alone with God. I don't know what it looks like for you, but you can figure out a way to fit this into your life on a regular basis, regular basis. Then one day a month, the regular rhythm of of my week is Thursday is sermon writing day, but I don't preach every weekend. So some Thursdays, uh, when I'm not preaching, I'll take that as a day of solitude. And I'll get in the car and just drive around the Iowa countryside. And if it's warm enough, you know, I have the windows down and all you hear is, is the wind. Sometimes a song will pop into my head and so I'll play the song. Maybe I'll play it on repeat for 30 minutes and then be quiet and ask, Lord, what, what was I supposed to hear in that? 
or I'll listen to a sermon, a, a podcast. Lord, what was the message I was supposed to hear from that? Sometimes I'll listen to sports talk radio. That probably doesn't count for solitude. <laughs> but I'm just telling, I'm just trying to be real. So I think some of you probably go, man, must be nice, you know, to be a pastor, to schedule a whole day to do that. It's work. And some of us, you're like, the rest of us live in the real world, though. And we've got real jobs. And so who has time to set aside a whole day for solitude? Let me offer some suggestions who has time for this. People who love to golf have time for solitude. People who love to fish. People who love to hunt. Sitting up in the deer stand all day long, all by yourself, it's a perfect opportunity. I don't like to fish. I know a lot of people do. Their favorite place is out on the river or out on the lake uh, maybe with one other person, sometimes completely alone, it helps them clear their mind. What if you took a look at your life and realized there are some things that you love to do? You're already doing it. You have it scheduled into your calendar. What if you took the opportunity to turn that into a place where you actually invite God to join you in those moments and, and during that time so that it can be a, a place of connection with your Creator? I don't know what it looks like for you. One day a month and then one week every year. When we moved to Ankeny, I started working at Hope a little over 10 years ago. Pretty quickly after that, someone let my wife and me know about an organization, a ministry that puts on five-day spiritual retreats for pastors and spouses. And so six or seven times over the last 10 years, Wendy and I have set aside a week to do this. And I got to tell you, it is the most restful week of the year. The first time we did it, we were at some place on a lake in, uh, in Wisconsin, and we slept for 17 hours a day. We, were we could not believe how exhausted we were. Remember what Jesus says to his disciples? Come away to a quiet place where we can rest. I think most of us don't realize how we're just kind of running on fumes until we burn out. So it was a great week for us. We came home from that. I don't remember how little our kids were at the time. Uh, we have six kids now. We only had five at the time, and, and we had this brilliant idea. We should probably really have that one-day Sabbath for the whole family every week. And I work on Sunday, so Monday is my Sabbath day. And we, we, the next Monday, we scheduled that this is going to be a Sabbath day for us and the kids, and it's going to be wonderful. And it was the most miserable day of our lives, and we've never done it since. <laughs> And so I, I, I'm not saying don't do it, but I am saying if you try to do it and it doesn't work, especially those of you with little kids, give yourself some grace on this. Be gracious. I mean, season of life really impacts the way in which we're able to do solitude. It doesn't mean we don't do it. It just means it might look different depending on what stage of life you are in. So solitude is disruptive. Solitude is agenda-free. One last thing, uh, solitude is relational. Solitude is relational. John Ortberg, in his book, Love Beyond Reason, he's writing about spiritual disciplines. In the chapter on prayer, he relays a story a Quaker author and pastor by the name of Richard Foster tells. There's a man who has to go and do some shopping at the mall, and he brings his three-year-old son along with him. And as you can imagine, the three-year-old son isn't particularly interested in shopping. And so he lets his father know about this and all sorts of uh, behaviors that the father didn't appreciate. Whining and complaining and fussing and throwing a fit. And so 
Everything the father tries to do to calm the son down, it's not working. And as kind of a last ditch, last gasp, you know, Hail Mary attempt to calm his son down, the father picks up the three-year-old son and holds him close to his chest and begins to sing to him. And not a song any of us would know, he just makes it up as he goes. But as he's singing and he's not singing well, he pours out his heart to his son. I love you. I'm so glad you're in this world. I love it when you laugh. And over and over and over, he sings, he sings, he sings, and it begins to calm his son down. So they go from store to store, the father continuing to quietly sing, the son eventually puts his head on his father's shoulder, they get all their shopping done, go back out to the car, buckling the son in, and the son says, sing it to me again, daddy. Sing it to me again. Solitude is an invitation from Jesus to get to this place where we feel and understand and know in a very real way that we have a God who holds us close to his chest, who sings to us his love song. It seems to me a lot of us spend a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to fill the silence. Solitude is an invitation to learn to let the silence fill you. The longer I follow Jesus, the more convinced I become he's the most powerful man who ever lived. And the source of Jesus' power is found in solitude. When he does hear the voice of his heavenly father as he's praying, that voice says, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The invitation to you and to me is to get to that place, that quiet place where we can hear that voice. In the midst of all the voices in our life, we can hear the one true voice that reminds us who we are and how loved we are. So we want to take just a couple more minutes uh, to practice that. Alyssa and the team are going to come and lead us in a song, and this is an agenda-free time uh, to let God do what God needs to do in your heart and in your soul.